Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Live Different, The Beatitudes of Jesus. Back in 1997, Apple Inc. launched its Think Different advertising campaign. In television, print, billboards, and posters, the series of ads featured 17 iconic game changers of the 20th century. People like Einstein, Gandhi, and Amelia Earhart. The campaign lasted until 2002 and won numerous awards. Think Different exemplified Steve Jobs' minimalist aesthetic. It also parodied IBM's old-school mantra, Think, from 1911. It's also grammatically quirky in a playful way. We expect a conventional adverb, as in think differently, whereas Jobs insisted on an unconventional noun, as in think victory, think different. Most of all, think different channeled Apple's countercultural vibe. Jobs had famously lured the Pepsi president, John Scully, to Apple in 1983 with his challenge, do you want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? He once said in an interview, we're here to put a dent in the universe. Why else even be here? In a 1990 interview, 1994 interview with PBS called One Last Thing, Jobs explained his revolutionary rebel theme. He said, When you grow up, you tend to get told the world is the way it is, and your life is just to live your life inside the world. Try not to bash into the walls too much. Try to have a nice family life, have fun, save a little money. That's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you've discovered one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build up your own things that other people can use. The minute that you understand that you can poke life and actually something will, you know, if you push in, something will pop out the other side, that you can change it, you can mold it. That's maybe the most important thing. It's to shake off this erroneous notion that life is there and you're just going to live it, versus embrace it, change it, improve it, make your mark on it. I think that's very important, and however you learn that, once you learn it, you'll want to change life and make it better. Because it's kind of messed up in a lot of ways. Once you learn that, you'll never be the same again. And so the advertising campaign, Think Different, honored the crazy ones. It said, here's to the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Well, wait a minute. Is Think Different really different? And is Apple Inc. 
really revolutionary? The ad campaign was brilliant. And there's no denying that computers, smartphones, search engines, and social media have revolutionized our lives. And Apple gets extra credit for product design and user interface. On a different level, though, Think Different was just more Silicon Valley hype, and no one sold the Kool-Aid better than Steve Jobs. In his book, You Are Not a Gadget, Jaron Lanier laments the cybernetic totalism in Silicon Valley that's fueled by its own religious fervor, fervor and sweet faith. In the book To Save Everything, Click Here, Yevgeny Morozov deconstructs the folly of what he calls technological solutionism, as if gadgets will solve all the problems of the world. The novelist Dave Eggers fictionalizes this techno-hype and our cultural conformity to it in his new book called The Circle. A new college grad named May works at a dystopian tech company called The Circle. The Circle is led by the three wise men, and it's an environment of enchantment. May says, my God, as she surveyed the corpus campus, it's heaven. And by the way, the circle in Edgar's telling exhibits all the characteristics of a cult, including the near impossibility of opting out. And note the irony. Apple products aren't much different than Google or Samsung gadgets. At most, there's a distinction without a difference. They're so similar that they sue each other over patent infringements. So, instead of individual creativity, rebel re revolutionaries, techno-ads and their products invite us to group conformity. That's the purpose of advertisement, after all. The purpose, however brilliant, is our group conformity. If you really dared to think different, if you canceled Facebook and t Twitter, or threw away your phone, you would pay a high price for your creative nonconformity. It would be an act of self-marginalization. The 4th century desert monk St. Anthony observed this stark contrast between authentic creativity and group conformity. He said, A time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad, you are not like us. In the Old Testament reading this week, Micah criticizes religious conformity in favor of a truly revolutionary life. In the famous verse of Micah 6:8, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Just how revolutionary would this be? Imagine kindness on Wall Street, humility in Hollywood, justice in politics. Or consider our gotcha journalism, which profits from slander. Or as the psalmist this week suggests a radical alternative, cast no slur on your neighbor. 
And then there's the Beatitudes in this week's Gospel, which describe a genuinely countercultural style of life. In a world of wealth and war, says Jesus, blessed are the poor and the peacemakers. Instead of violence and vengeance, blessed are the mournful, the meek, and the merciful. When the powerful forces of conformity tempt me to prove myself, there's always the example of Mary Oliver in her poem today. She takes a day off to do nothing at all except, quote, let the voodoos of ambition sleep. Or in one of my favorite poems, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front, the poet farmer Wendell Berry suggests ways to practice resurrection. For example, he writes, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Or again, in whatever you might do, ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? To live the Beatitudes is to live different, as one of the true crazy ones. They take us off the grid, figuratively, if not literally. In his sermon on Romans 12, 1 and 2, Martin Luther King Jr. called this a life of transformed nonconformity. Its permutations are as numerous as our individual personalities and life situations. In the epistle this week, Paul describes it as a life that chooses the foolishness of God over the wisdom of the world. Live different. For books this week, I review a title called Silence, A Christian History. The author is Dermot McCulloch, New York Viking, 2013, 338 pages. Any new book by the Oxford historian Dermot McCulloch is an automatic read for me. I've previously reviewed his two award-winning books, The Reformation, 2003, and Christianity, The First 3,000 Years, 2010, along with the film version of the latter title produced by the BBC in six DVDs, which, in fact, I watched three times. This new book is a bit different, as it combines critical history with a personal agenda. The Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once commented on this awkward situation. The historian must analyze the data with rigorous neutrality, and yet do so with an awareness of your own biases. He compared it to doing brain surgery on your mother. Pelican was a self-identified believer, so he faced one set of challenges. McCulloch is not, and so his book reads like an axe to grind. There's material aplenty in the Bible and Christian history to warrant this fascinating study. There's the silence of God in the Psalms, the silence of Jesus before his accusers, Paul's silencing of women at Corinth, in the famous half-hour of silence in Revelation. Recall the monastic silence of the Carthusians, the Cluniacs, and Cistercians. The rule of St. Benedict devotes an entire chapter to silence. 
There's the silence of Orthodox Hesychus and Protestant Quakers. Or consider the vanished voices of history. One scholarly calculation is that 85% of the texts we positively know to have once existed in the first 150 years of Christianity's life are now lost. To say nothing of texts from that period of whose existence we have never even heard. Every silence is different and distinctive, observes McCullough. Not all silence is golden. There are silences of shame, evasion, and willful avoidance, and silences of dissimulation and forgetfulness enforced by powerful authorities. Recall the Inquisitions. In the introduction and in his conclusion, McCulloch is unapologetic about his personal bias. He calls his negative observations about silence, especially those about homosexuality, pedophilia, anti-Semitism, and slavery, quote, a necessary penitential work of stripping the altars, end quote. You might argue that the role of a whistleblower is better left for memoir than history. And I hope that one day McCulloch will, in fact, publish a memoir. I will read it with relish. Dermot McCulloch, Silence, A Christian History. For, <clears throat> for films this week, I review a movie called The Summit from 2013. On August the 1st, 2008, 11 people of an international group of 18 climbers died on K2, the second highest peak in the world that lies on the border between Pakistan and China. Mount Everest is higher but most climbers agree that K2 was more challenging and dangerous. Before the debacle had ended, thanks to par partial information that was spread on the internet, the tragedy had turned into a controversy about what happened and why. To this day, says a brother of one of the deceased, I've always been amazed how so many people had such different stories. Through interviews with the survivors, their friends, and family, archival footage of the actual events, and reenactments, this docudrama tries to answer the unknowable. At least two of the survivors and two Sherpas have written books about the fatal day. This film premiered at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival. From the year 2013, The Summit. For poetry this week, we've posted some of the hard-hitting poetry of Scott Cairns, an American poet, memoirist, librettist, and essayist. Scott Cairns is the Catherine Payne Middlebush Chair in English at the University of Missouri. The title of the poem for this week Further Possible Answers to Prayer. As for hell, your hell is deep chagrin. 
a deeply wrenching circumstance in which the soul no longer manages to skirt what's what. The fire? Well, that rich searing is my tenderness, as felt by all who have so long worked to mute my tenderness. The only demons then in play will be the ones you've carried with you, the cohort you have wed and fed, whose offspring you have borne. Acute chagrin, which the soul, so long as she is willing, so long as she is not absolutely dead, may one day shed. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 2nd, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.